Welcome to another East Career Podcast brought to you by the East Career Development Committee. My name is Rob Bame from the Guthrie Clinic in Sarah, Pennsylvania. In this session, we are pleased to have Dr. Addison May with us to talk about what to look for in a fellowship and what to expect as a fellow. Dr. May is a professor of surgery and anesthesiology at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He is the Director of Research within the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, and for the past 16 years, he has been the Program Director of the Surgical Critical Care and Acute Care Surgery Fellowship, serving as a mentor to over 50 Surgical Critical Care Fellows, myself included. He has been repeatedly recognized for his excellence in both clinical care and teaching, and we are honored to have him with us today. Good morning, Dr. May, and again, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Rob. It's my pleasure. So I'd like to start out this morning just by talking about the fellowship application process in general and what an applicant should be looking for when considering a surgical critical care fellowship. So if you would mind, just tell us what you think the key components that really make up a good ACS fellowship are. Well, I guess um, I identify maybe five major components that, that make up uh, a good program. First of all, programs need to provide uh, all of its fellows with a significant but not overwhelming volume of, div of uh, a diverse population of critically ill and injured patients. You know, secondly, I think the institution, the division, and its faculty really need to have in place systems and structures that support excellence in care of critically ill and injured patients so that you actually learn through mentoring and modeling uh, of systems and faculty during your training. Third, I think uh, fellows, it, it's mandatory that fellows are an integral part of the patient care delivery system and actually the systems that support quality and patient care so that they actually develop the skill and understanding of how to achieve excellence in patient care. If you're, if you're a bystander in a process, it's a very different learning sort of setting than if you're actually integral to care delivery. Fourth, I think uh, fellows really need to be able to uh, achieve a graded increase in responsibility and independence for patient care and other related professional activities during their training. Um, the sort of first two weeks that you don't have to call a faculty for every decision is the second <laughs> steepest learning curve during your training typically, uh, the first being the first couple weeks or maybe the first month of your fellowship. And then um, I guess fifth, I would say an educational structure and a history of mentorship that supports professional growth and development of its fellows. Uh, during the fellowship, but uh, probably even well beyond the period of the fellowship. Okay. That's great. Uh, so, regarding the, the uh, clinical exposure and the clinical volume you talked about, when, when fellows are considering a program, how much weight should they put on the clinical volume, kind of specifically the operative volume that they'll be exposed to? Well, um, you know, the volume needs to be 
substantial but not overwhelming. You know, one of the things to remember is that practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. So doing something wrong a hundred times doesn't make you better. Uh, so uh, there, there, there is the possibility that systems can be overwhelmed by their volume. So you, you, you need to be in a setting in which you can both learn um, from the excellence of others uh, and then achieve your excellence. So you do need an adequate volume. Um, I, I like the ability to spread the operative volume somewhat across both years, and uh, that's the way our program is structured. So that's not mandatory. Um, I would say that I believe that if it is spread, operative volume spread across both years, that there needs to be periods in which the delivery of critical care support can be independent of operative volume so that you have time to think about how you deliver excellent critical care uh, because critical care is uh, very time sensitive. Uh, requires uh, a lot of detail and prospective uh, energy to prevent and avoid complications rather than, than treating complications. So um, I, I certainly think it needs a balance. There's many, many fellows come into interview process thinking that they just need operative volume, but um, that's, in my view, usually not the case. Um, if you're really going to provide a have a career of well balanced uh, excellence in critical care as well as the operative uh, care of critically injured patients. Yeah, and I, I gosh, I agree. With you. I've only been on a couple of years, and uh, I feel like the operative part is not the hard part, really. It's the other thing you're talking about, the uh, critical care and the thinking part about it. Um, Regarding the, the, the non-clinical things or the components of a fellowship and that volume and things, I guess first of all, what do you what, what could you talk about the the important non-clinical components of a fellowship are and what they should be considering during the fellowship interviews? Well, uh, every fellow comes or every applicant, I guess, uh, comes with uh, maybe a different need and a different long-term uh, interest. Uh, and so there are several areas of growth that most fellows need to achieve. I, I believe that all fellows need to achieve what I would call growth in sort of extended professionalism. It's, it's the ability to uh, initiate uh, systems, projects, uh, run things, collaborate with people, um, and learn life's lessons so that you know how to do that in a uh, w when you get into the real world. Uh, fellows, for the most part, have always been in training when they come to a fellowship, and so most don't realize just how different the playing field is when you get to your first job. Um, it, so it's it's very different. Um, so I think all fellows should 
get that. And then ideally you are provided the opportunity to grow in particular areas of interest to you, whether that's, hey, I want to be a national leader in education uh, or whether that's I need to develop my research skills and grow along that line, uh, although frequently those sort of things overlap. Um, in my view, it it doesn't necessarily matter if you grow something that ends up being your long-term key to success as much as just growing something because the model that you use to become successful in the development of any sort of structure and system is the same process that you, you know, through which you achieve success in, in any of the uh, sort of uh, professional activities that you do after fellowship. Yeah, and I, gosh, I agree with you again. I, um, and it seems like you're really focusing a lot of uh, importance on a system. Like you can learn clinical medicine in a lot of places, but a system that helps patients and fellows and education all together is going to produce the best fellow and best attending. That sounds like what you're saying. And, uh, uh, well, I'm, absolutely. And, and uh, the, the vast majority of uh, physicians now finishing their training are going out and joining uh, systems, um, whether that's big groups versus hospitals. Uh, so even if you don't do something as systems-oriented as critical care, trauma, emergency general surgery, burns, all of those require a huge system to provide the best level care or excellence in care. Uh, even if you're doing a relatively outpatient, uh, non-intensive system, most people are now joining groups that are large and no longer um, a setting in which you can sort of be your own enterprise uh, and uh, practice independently. So uh, those skills are important for everybody. Right. Um, <clears throat> another question about just the fellowship program itself. Uh, what there's you know different faculty come from different subspecialties, and I know uh, uh, some programs you get exposed to like anesthesia, anesthesia faculty, for example. Other programs are run purely by anesthesia, some purely by surgery. Um, can you comment briefly on, gosh, the, is there importance or non-importance of a multi-subspecialty faculty for the fellows? Well, I, I think it, you, you probably can achieve excellence with any of the models. Uh, having said that, diversity brings a lot of benefits. Diversity brings benefits in, in the system of care uh, and the system of education. So, you know, we all see, see solutions, see information, see things the way our construct sees it and puts it together. Uh, they, from a different construct, it may look very different. And so if you're exposed to multiple constructs, you typically not only achieve different levels of care, but different education. So, I, you know, our system tries to maintain both in education as well as in care delivery uh, 
the the diversity of exposure to anesthesia, surgery, cardiovascular, uh, a, a breadth of people with with expertise, um, and diversity not only leads to innovation, uh, but the ability to get input from broad groups, almost uh, always uh, groups of input, groups of people outperform single uh, inputs or individuals making decisions. So just to be able to learn how to function in a group, um, collaborate across specialties, understand that uh, just because I see something, the wall looks black to me, uh, it doesn't necessarily look black to somebody else who's seeing it from a different angle. Uh, just being able to sort of achieve those skills is important for your long-term professional development and the ability to deliver the top, highest quality patient care. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, so, Dr. May, you, uh, gosh, you've been doing this for a long time. You've seen a lot of applicants. And so when, when applicants are applying to your program and things, um, what qualities are you looking for in an applicant as a potential fellow? Like, for example, when you're looking at the paper application, is there something that you look you look for as something that stands out as you're reading through these applications? Yes, although I will be honest that I, I think the, it's very difficult to – to select uh, so many applicants are, you know, everybody's achieved a lot to get to the place where you are. <laughs> uh, and so separating uh, people on paper and even through an interview process can be, uh, can be difficult. Um, but usually it's evidence of, of energy and growth. Uh, achievements against adversity are always, um, you know, that always provides a history of, okay, well, I, I see what they've done. And, and for me, uh, it, it doesn't matter if you come from a small program or a big academic uh, training program with uh, two years of research, you can still look into someone's uh, resume or CV and sort of ascertain what they have been able to achieve. Open-mindedness and a willingness to learn and be introspective. Uh, again, that's, that is frequently difficult to, to gain from at least the written application. Uh, clearly, people have to have achieved a certain level of performance. I mean, uh, we get a lot of applicants, so if you've done very poorly on all of your exams throughout training and uh it, it's it's hard to take people from lower levels but but most people obviously if they've gotten to this point um have a history of of success and achievement uh so it's it's really trying to get a handle on their energy and interest on continuing their growth uh and for me it's a it's it's sort of always asking why about everything 
whether it's pathophysiology, why, I, I want to understand why that's occurring, whether there's so the clinical approach that's taken, taken here, gee, why are you doing it this way versus, gee, the way I learned it in my program, there's a reason why it was done that way in your program and why it's done here, and why do you approach it uh, that way in the system of delivery? Those are things that are not straightforward to get to in a in a application, but it, it's sort of what I look for in the application. So when you have uh, all these applications, they all kind of look, like you said, very uh, um, successful people, kind of the same. Then how much value and uh, influence do the letters of recommendation have to the application process? Well, I think letters are important. Um, but I would say personal communications and energy of people uh, spontaneously reaching out is even more important. So uh, letters need to be strong, and you you know everybody learns to read subtleties uh, in letters. Um, having said that. You know, if you're someone who is really just energetic about learning, you know, even if you're not the highest, most skilled uh, uh, chief coming out of your program, technically, that doesn't necessarily matter if you're still interested in growing and learning. So uh, everybody learns at different paces. Uh, being the most skilled as an intern doesn't mean you're going to be the most skilled as a chief uh, and the most successful and skilled uh, as a uh, faculty or attending wherever you end up practicing. So uh, interesting in growth, and that usually comes across in letters. It certainly comes across when you're contacted by individuals who go to bat for an applicant. Okay. And he, and he kind of touched on this part, too, um, but I was wondering if an applicant, they come from various programs, right, large programs, small programs, like you just said, does it, how important is that research experience? In other words, does it hurt an applicant if they have not had significant research experience prior to fellowship? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, it, it certainly is if somebody's done a research experience and they've achieved a lot. It, it actually, if you did two years of research and achieved little, that would be a negative. Um, so, you know, you only have so many years to learn in, in advance and, and to not be productive during a uh, one- or two-year process uh, in this long slog of uh, training um, would be to, to your disadvantage. Uh, in an application process. Uh, from my standpoint, I'm actually always sort of a bit conflicted. I, is Does our program achieve more benefit or contribute more if we take someone from a small program who is thinking, oh, you know, I probably will do you know, X, some small uh, practice, 
and they change their mindset, advance their practice, and become a national leader, uh, or if we take somebody who has done two years of research and published a bunch and is recruited by everybody in the country um, and they become a successful academic surgeon, I think we've moved the first one much more. So I, I suspect our contribution is greater with that first applicant. So, you know, we're interested in training people to be in a position to lead on a local and national level in whatever they want and choose to do. And we want to have people achieve that level of, of success. So uh, to me, that doesn't necessarily have to come from an academic, strongly academic program. So it sounds like you're looking for good people with good hearts that want to work hard and are willing to learn. That sounds like the ideal fellow uh, applicant, huh? Correct. That's exactly what I would say. All right. Well, Dr. May, I was going to shift gears for a second here and uh, start to talk about kind of life after the application process. Uh, once the chiefs are graduated, they're now fellows, they're ready to go. So what would your expectations be for a first-year fellow early during their fellowship? Well, I, they need to come in and, and sort of be sponges. Um, <laughs> if you've been a faculty, you, you know that, hey, as residents become chiefs, uh, they have to gain confidence. Well, and they gain confidence and they start to believe that they know everything. And, you know, you know they're sort of ready to graduate when they're trying to elbow the attending off the table. But you've only begun to learn medicine at that point. There is so much to learn. And so having an open mind being able to, again, ask why, Do why is it done this way here? How do I gain information from it? What What is it that I'm going to take from my previous training versus my new training? Uh, how can I incorporate stuff and, and add back? Uh, I think are all important sort of questions. Fellows need to be very engaged, and they need energy. You know, two years, most, almost all of our fellows do two years here. It seems like a long time, but it goes by in the blink of an eye. Sure. And the playing field is very different when you get to your first job. Um, it's, it's just different. Elbows are sharper. You, in training, you're not competing with the food on anybody's. Uh, with anybody for the food on their plate or their academic cloud or anything. And and so training is a specific time, and, and uh, fellows need to take full advantage of uh, of that. Uh, so just coming in and being ready and open-minded and sponges to figure out, uh, hey, you know, what is the system that I'm in and how can I – most effectively get information from that system. Yeah, I, sound, I, I agree. Goodness gracious, that's right. And so these fellows, they come in, 
gosh, some people could be coming from big academic programs, small, smaller programs, a huge range of clinical experience, competence, and confidence, both in patient management and going to the OR. So does that, I guess, uh, breadth of people coming in impact your expectations for a new class of fellows? It does. The, the breadth actually probably provides challenges, but it also provides benefits. Um, again, diversity helps you to see things from multiple different angles. You know, we have fellows who come in and get here and have never intubated a patient and never put a PA catheter in. And then we have people who come in who've done huge numbers. Um, so it, it, it provides challenges. We have to be able to assess where people are and sort of adjust uh, their training for that. Having said that, um, things are going to be different when you come to a new program. Uh, and some things will seem Gee, why do they do it that way? But I can promise you that there's a reason or some historical rationale why it's done a certain way. Um, and being able to garner the those things that make it the way it is is actually very important so that you can learn the variance between the two and figure out you're getting ready to probably go to a third system with different variants. So you're going to have to be able to apply, uh, potentially adjust, and potentially change and improve um, a system where, that you subsequently join. And as these, as, these, as these fellows are coming in, Dr. May, with this breadth of experience, gosh, some they're all uh, – board eligible, potentially board certified general surgeons that are joining as a fellow. So what can they expect regarding clinical and operative autonomy with the graded responsibility you talked about earlier? Well, I, you know, what we, we try to provide here, I think, um, at least in our program, um, sort of multi increase in responsibility. You know, first, you have to come in and be able to learn how the system functions there and how people are putting information together so that you can deliver the best care in that system. So you may know all you need to know from your previous system of how to do a certain um process or, or make clinical decisions, uh, but that's likely to be variable in your new system. So early on, uh, most people need a significant amount of contact and oversight to be able to get that. And then within a critical care year, there's a graded increase in responsibility of, hey, I've uh, am contributing significantly to the running of a unit and to rounds and uh, et cetera to, hey, 
the faculty is there and is maintaining you know the responsibility but but I can make the decisions that the faculty is usually the same decision the faculty would make but the faculty has to be comfortable with the decision uh, and run the team and run the unit and then there's sort of the next level of okay well I've got a, a surgical patient um, you know, early, we have the benefit of being able to have fellows participate in operations with critically injured patients during the first year, uh, and they're in a position of being basically like an extended chief resident uh, with faculty always being present. Into the second year, uh, as they grow, they're increasingly independent where they can operate on patients on their own and make clinical decisions on their own, yet we have to have a system where if it's the sickest patient in the hospital at that time, that fellow needs some high-level uh, input uh, from one or multiple skilled faculty. But uh, I vividly remember in my training, um, again, the, the steepest learning curve I had uh, beyond the first month of first year was the first two weeks of second year when I didn't have to call a faculty uh, about every patient and every decision I made. Uh, it changes um, a process in your brain, and it certainly changes your sphincter tone. <laughs> Yeah, well said. So it sounds like your expectations for a fellow are that they are humble, they are open-minded, they're excited to learn, and they're willing to adjust and to learn a new system and really integrate themselves into the system, become part of it. And once they become part of the system, then they will be given more autonomy and more freedom to do uh, clinical decision-making. That's on yeah, absolutely. what I'm hearing. I think that's right, that's right, on, the, right on the money, and you know, <laughs> you've probably heard me say it in the past, humans by their nature are pretty egocentric. Uh, so if you're running rounds and you're making clinical decisions that are different than the faculty, the faculty obviously thinks that their decisions are better ones. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if you're going to make a decision different than the faculty every time, they're probably thinking you're not ready to run rounds. Right. Um, Although there will, there, you know, we will learn. I'll learn critical care from non-intensivists. I'll certainly learn critical care from fellows that come in, uh, and we we all need to be open to learning uh, throughout our career. All right, there's one more quick question for you, Dr. May. As everyone starts a new job, whether it's a residency, fellowship, or even a faculty position, you're a bit nervous. And I think it's a little bit more so when it's a training program. So it'd be really helpful if you could maybe offer some some advice on, gosh, some common errors you see fellows make. That, and is there a way that they can maybe avoid these errors to prevent problems during their fellowship? Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, first, um, I think it's very important for everybody to realize we grow and learn through errors. So mistakes are actually good. And part of what we 
do here is, you know, uh, we're going to give you a leash, and it's going to get longer and longer, and I'm going to give you more and more things because I actually want you to identify those problems that are out there, the landmines out in the road um, that you may not even know exist. If you step on them in training, you get a do-over. If you step on them in your first job, you don't get a do-over. So first is, you know, all fellows come in very success-driven. They have a high level of expertise. Uh, expectations for themselves and so being able to recognize that oh I'm, I can only learn and grow through mistakes and not beat myself up and not mm, take that as uh, critical uh, you're not learning if, right, if you're skiing and you don't fall you're probably not advancing so uh, that's number one um, two, I would say the intern effect is is a problem. You know, everybody knows the best intern. You know, will put his head down and go through a wall in front of them. But they're not necessarily the best chiefs. In fact, they're typically not the best chiefs. Sometimes the best chiefs are the guys that were the lazy interns because they know how to get everybody else to work for them. So the intern, you don't want to come in, and when the going gets tough. Your solution is to work harder and isolate yourself. That's the single biggest thing that I see people make mistakes. When they get stressed and worked and extended and harder, they quit communicating, they quit reaching out to others, and they quit working well as a team. So uh, the most skilled fellows can communicate very well and – uh, ask, involve multiple faculty with regularity, and again, ask why on everything. You, you you can believe that the way you learned to do it was the better way in your training, and it may in fact be. But it's how you ask the question of, okay, gee, you guys do it differently this way here. Why? I did it this way in my training, and I'm trying to figure out how to make, do the best way. And so you may move them, but you know, telling somebody that your way is better is, is rarely a successful way to change behavior. So just being able to ask why uh, and communicate, I think, is, is, is critical. Right, yeah, it sounds like it keeps coming down to the same qualities. Just be humble and be a nice person, and you'll be fine. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it, it, I'm I'm getting old, so I don't remember, but I remember almost all my fellows. I think that uh, that described you pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Dr. May, gosh, uh, I'm, I think we covered everything pretty good about the application process and what to expect of the fellow. Is there anything else you can think that you want to add that we didn't talk about? Uh, nothing that, that, that comes up too much, except I, I would reiterate um, I'm obviously very biased here because we have a two-year program. 
um, and a lot of people come through and are trying to make a decision about one versus two years. Uh, but to me, they're, it's not additive. It's a it's an exponential growth. Um, the the curve really becomes steep somewhere towards the end of the first year into the second year, uh, and the growth that you can get from two years if you're if you apply yourself and you're open-minded uh, is substantial and it's remember that in training it's okay to make mistakes you want to make mistakes you well you don't want to make mistakes you want to push yourself um, to where uh, you're doing so much that you learn by people being able to tell you oh there's a better way to do this so I guess yeah, I I agree with you, Dr. Me. I can't tell you how much how invaluable that second year was to me. And so if people are out there thinking one or two years, I really can't emphasize enough how much I thought the second year was a huge benefit for me too. I agree with you. Well, it's it's so, it's, hard, it's it's definitely hard to appreciate, much harder to appreciate what you get before you do it than afterwards. And I I've never been able to, to come up with an adequate description uh to to have people understand what it is they're going to learn. Right. Well, that's great. Well, listen, on behalf of the East Career Development Committee, I would like to thank you, Dr. May, so much for taking your time to speak with us today. Uh, well, thank you for I am, the invitation. It's an honor, uh, and I, I hope it provides uh, good insights for, for people who are interested in looking at fellowships. I think so. I, several of my residents have been asking similar questions, and I think it, everything you talked about was just really, really helpful, so I appreciate it. So I'm, I'm Rob Bame, and I hope you enjoyed this program and found it helpful. When you do find a moment of time, please visit the EAST website at www.east.org for most more EAST podcasts and other valuable information. Thank you so much.